Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with filmmaker Mark Moskovitz on his new television documentary series, It Was the Music, which focuses on the lives and careers of Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host, from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKee. In the last few years, we have seen the music biopic become a very popular genre. Rami Malek, of course, won an Oscar for playing Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody. We've had uh, Taron Egerton play Elton John in Rocketman. Uh, we've seen films on Aretha, Helen Reddy. There was one recently released about David Bowie. Going back further, of course, you had Walk the Line. Both Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon were nominated for Oscars. Reese, of course, won. Jamie Foxx won for Ray. Um... Forrest Whitaker has played Charlie Parker. There's an Elvis movie in production, uh, directed being directed by Baz Luhrmann. And, of course, you've also seen some documentaries. You may remember my interview with Alex Winter about Zappa or Julian Temple about the great Shane McGowan. There's another series, too, that is being released both on fans and on Amazon that is about two singers who you might not know by name, but you've probably heard their work. Larry Campbell is a multi-instrumentalist who for years played with Bob Dylan, uh, and has also played with the late, great Levon Helm. He is married to fellow musician Teresa Williams. And after years of being session musicians recording musicians, playing for somebody else in somebody else's band, they've taken center stage, playing their own music, their own songs, recording their own albums. Larry's also been doing a lot of producing. They are the centerpieces, the focal points, the subjects of a new 10-part documentary series called It Was the Music from director Mark Moskovitz. Mark is a storyteller who is known for 
his what he calls issue oriented media he's done more than 3000 political spots for races both nationally locally and worldwide and has been awarded Polly's which is uh, political media's highest award for 5 consecutive years in 2003 he released his first feature-length documentary called Stone Reader, which was about books, or more specifically, how a critically acclaimed book vanished, and so did the author, and they were, they were trying to find out why. That was released back in... 2002. Now, Mark has released another documentary, this time a series. It was the music, which focuses on, as I mentioned earlier, the lives and careers of touring husband and wife musician team Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams. The series is being released on fans.live as well as Amazon. Uh, and later on in the year, you'll be able to find it on iTunes as well. And as a special treat, uh, my second show this week on Friday will feature an interview with Larry and Teresa. But in the meantime... This is my conversation with the filmmaker Mark Moskowitz. What what is the effect do you think that the <laughs> the pandemic has had on not just the documentary industry, but I guess like the the the, the industry as a whole in in terms of its I, I, production well, values? I, I think I keep telling people we're going to see great stuff. I mean, we're going to see I don't know when, but great stuff because. You know, it's a great documentary film called Five Obstructions by a uh, um, Danish filmmaker and um, where he, he's given these set of 10 rules to go make these short documentaries. He has to have a trash can in this scene and he has to, the sound has to be this and he has to find a pregnant mother. And he does these ingenious films because of the limitations that he's working against. Then when they give him at the end complete unlimited freedom, he, he doesn't know what to do, right? <laughs> Um, so I, I think we're going to see, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's just the same old, same old, same old stuff. It's beautifully done. I mean, even the lowest cost documentaries now or fiction things or seven minute shorts on YouTube, not to mention, you know, gangbuster Netflix series are just beautifully done. The technology there, the know-how, there's so many people have gone through film school and stuff in the last 20 years. It's just stuff's you know the lenses today um but there's no ideas i mean it's all the same stuff and now i think people are going to be forced to come up with some really interesting stuff you're going to see people giving people cameras in their homes um other kind of interior stories that filmmakers will tell i mean maybe we'll see some of these great talented filmmakers who have been making just you know the same old stuff for the you know the big distributors sort of sitting back and saying 
doing a personal story of some sort, you know, um, small and, and people have been doing that now and then, but now they're sort of forced to do it. So I think we could see some really different kind of good stuff. Uh, I'm not that worried about it. You know, it, you know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned, uh, you know, a, a lot of the same and we are seeing a lot of, musical stories lately, whether it's documentary or we're seeing a lot of biopics, you know, you had Bohemian Rhapsody, yeah. Rocket Man, uh, a lot there was... of just, yeah. <laughs> and those, those are all films. And yet you, you've you gone the, 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 the television route. And I think we, we are in sort of a new golden age of television with all the streaming and, and just the, 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 the type of quality yeah. um, that is coming out. What made you want to want to tell, you know, sort of a, a longer, more drawn out story rather than maybe like a, a typical two hour documentary that we might see? Well, first off, I, I as a film goer myself, I, I felt sometime in the late 70s, 80s, certainly by the 90s, the two hour format had been played out, you know, um, I mean, even by by the 80s what people wanted were longer things whether they were watching knots landing or or ken burns things or, or something you know they just once you like something you want to stay with it a little bit and um there's great comfort um to see something in your own home which is different than going to a movie theater to it now now i made a film in 2000 it came out in 2003 it was made earlier called stone reader and that originally was made at, I made it for five hours, for five one hours for PBS. And at the last um, sort of go round, it didn't make the programming schedule. So we were stuck with it. And a, a producer named Robert Goodman said, why don't you make this into a film? It's an independent documentary film. Film. It's, this was 2001 at the time. I said, well, who's going to see that? What is that? You know, there's no place for that. I mean, there is today, but there wasn't then. And we did it and it won some awards and it went out theatrically and people loved it. But I always think of that as the five hour version. I mean, if you go see it, it's the two hour version. Um, it's coming back in a couple of weeks on the, one of all the streaming things. It'll be remastered because I shot it on 16 millimeter to get it back to a tra negative transfer. It took some time. But um, I've always been interested in the longer form things. I like big books. I like, uh, I read books that are series and trilogies, you know? Um, and so, um, and I think seeing stuff, there is something great about seeing stuff in a theater. Once you make a two hour thing like stone reader, it worked great theatrically. Um, but the five hour thing might've been just as good in somebody's living room in, in some ways. So when I started, it was the music. Um, I didn't put a, restriction on it that way oh we're going to make a hundred hour music doc uh, we're going to i just sort of did what i wanted um and when i started cutting it i said this is a four hour thing this is two two hour films i'm going to put it out as two two hour films part one part two and um I had a discussion with Amazon at the time and said, why four hours? You know, last guy who came in here with four hours, we said, make it 10. <laughs> this was way back. Okay. This is like 2015, 16. Um, I didn't have 10, but I, but I had eight. Um, I had a good six. I had eight at, at the time. And then um, 
by the time we came to distribute it, nobody wanted something long. <laughs> they didn't want eight. They wanted four. <laughs> but I'm not sure. Um, it's so out of the box that I, I, I never, you know, everything I've done has been out of the box. So it, to get people to, A, to watch it at length and to take it on on the distribution side, that was, I did, never had much hope for that. Although we did try, uh, you know, minimally, like for putting it out ourselves. But I think it's a way, the length gives people a way to approach it more like a book in some ways. You can watch 20 minutes, you can watch 50 minutes, you can watch whatever you watch. I watch stuff that way. I don't watch, just because something is X episodes on TV doesn't mean I watch an episode and stop. Sometimes I watch 20 minutes, I pick it up, I resume, you know, um, like I do with a book. And uh, I thought maybe we, maybe we can do it that way. What then do you make of this of this debate, you know, of streaming that sort of it's pitting streaming against, you know, a, a theatrical release like they're competing and, you know, big directors like yeah. Del Toro, Spielberg yeah. and Scorsese say, oh, if it's on Netflix, it's not a film. It's it's it, 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 it's a TV show. And Khan had that the, the Khan Film Festival had that rule saying, oh, if you want to be eligible for our festival, you have to release it in theaters, yada, yada, yada. I, what right. do you make of that? Uh, I, I, I think it's, look, it is, I, I agree with them. It's not, it's not a film, it's a TV show, but, but TV shows have been incredibly powerful uh, to people. They're on week after week. They create social mores that often films don't. You know, you're in and out of a film, and oftentimes it's a Kubrick film or the best Scorsese films or, you know, um, um, you know Peter Ware films or, you know, certain directors. You're going to think about the films for a long time, and they're going to stay in your head, and that's powerful. But not not all, all of them are like that, and a lot of Hollywood films deliberately are not that way, but they don't want you doing that. They want it as a Disney ride, you know, up and down the roller coaster as fast as you can with a thrill and get out. So um, I, I agree with them. It's different. When you see something with a group of people in the dark, um, especially a comedy, um, it is a different experience, and it's a different set of rules. I always felt that when you saw films... You know, when they back when I was growing up, you know, films would be in theaters. And then after a year, they would go on TV on NBC or CBS or one of the networks with commercials. To me, that wasn't the same thing. It was the same film, but watching at home with the light on and a magazine and commercials and your family, it's, it's just not it's a different experience, just like maybe going to a concert and hearing the record or hearing the record and flipping the vinyl over from side to side or you know these are the music's the same the film's the same but the experience is different but uh, i don't think necessarily the tv or the streaming experience is a weaker one and in, in many ways it can be a stronger one because stuff's hitting you in your home and and that can be often a powerful uh a place but on the other hand the trick is you have to gain acceptance. Um, you can't you can't just go into somebody's living room and be all over the place. The reason why sitcoms for years and episodic shows uh, on TV for years always had the same locations is because that made people comfortable. They want to sit in their living room and Cosby's in his living room or, you know, whatever, you know, uh, um, NYPD Blue or whatever the uh, Law and Order show. It's the same places, the same offices and 
that's a sense of comfort to people. I know when I made this, uh, when, both in Stone Reader and this, I, I made sure I, I returned to continuing locations. Um, I think that adds um, a time element and a comfort level for the audience to, you know, to involve them a little more. Um, you know, I, and I know there's a whole other school of documentaries that are, you know, social justice ones and stuff where, where part of the point of the documentary is to take you on a mountain or into a barrio in, in Brazil, or I'm doing one now in Kenya in, in Kabira, the slums of Nairobi. And that's a different thing to show you something else that isn't that. But, um, you know, um, most stuff is, is uh, you want continuing locations with, I think. You know, you, you, you mentioned you're always much more interested in in sort of the longer form and even something like this, which is, you know, 10 episodes between, you know, 30, 30 and 50 minutes each. How much is is left over? How how do you decide, OK, well, um, I, I need to include this, but maybe I'll do it in episode four rather than episode two. I got to I got to take <laughs> this out. That's the question of the day. You're, I, I, only a filmmaker could ask that question. <laughs> it's like, that's a deep question. And um, it's really hard. Um, what, here's here's I, what I did on this one. Um, with Stone Reader, I was able, it's a much more linear construction. The story is told. So it was, it was much more, e it's a more chronological story. So it's much easier to say, okay, this goes here and then that goes there and Maybe this didn't work, so we'll cut that out and just go right to the next part of the story. But with this, it's not a linear construction. We play with time throughout. Um, it's more of an ode than a story in some ways. There is a story to it, but it's the story is a story of feelings and impressions and sort of growth of some of the people we follow. But I, I, I started out um, and felt each viewing experience had to have an arc. So the series actually began once I had it, before I got to the question of, should this go in four and should this go in eight? I made it how I want it to tell the story. And that isn't always at the beginning. Sometimes I start, and in this case, I started with what turned out to be episode six to some degree, um, some of in episode nine and some of episode three. And and I started putting those sequences together and, and I liked those things. And then I built around it. And then I began to see, well, if we're, if we're engaging Larry and Teresa on the porch at Teresa's parents in episode six and seeing how she started singing with her family, these hymns and get, putting forth this whole Tennessee part, at what point do I bring in Teresa's background about growing up in West Tennessee on a cotton patch farm? And I decided, why don't I just begin the story that way? But with her parents and who is this woman and why are we watching her? And rather than begin with Larry, who was some people will know played with Bob Dylan and, you know, is a well-known musician in, in, in many other ways. So that then, I stayed with that. A lot of people didn't want that. Why don't we begin with episode five? It starts out with a bang or episode six or this or that. And it would be like starting a mystery with, you know, the thriller part. And then you go back. And I said, no, let's just go to the beginning, start quiet and do a build. So then it was filling in the pieces once I had that. And yes, I had five 
90 minute sort of things. Okay. Each had an arc. So you could watch it. And I was going to do it as five films. It had grown from the two, two hour films to the five 90 minute films. And that's how I had it for a long time. And when we started looking for distribution, everybody said you cannot show people five 90 minute films. It's just an impossibility. Do not even think about it. And after being beaten on the head about it for quite some time, um, we took each episode and we split it into two. Now in doing that, your question is operable. You know, how do we, okay, the, the arc is sort of broken. Oh, well, now that we're doing that, maybe this interview with Tracy Nelson has to go here. We can't have that story there. Can we use it as a cold open here? I don't want to lose it. So there's a little bit of moving around. I was never really happy with it for a while. It was just klutzy. And I, as we went through the distribution problem process with these 10 pieces now, um, um, it got better. Um, you know, people watched it and we realized, oh, shit, this is, you know, that's just got to go out now, you know, or, gee, this is working and the end is great. But if this ends with this feeling of episode six, how do we begin seven? Oh, we have to begin quieter. You know, we have to let some space in, you know. And um, so right up to the end, before it, we, you know, we stuck it on Amazon in places, I, we were tinkering, you know, with that. And um, the tinkering matters. I think it matters. Um to me at least um you know maybe people watch it just goes right by and in some ways but um you do um i think our choices in the end were good there's some things looking back um i would i would have expanded now that we know we're 10 parts uh, so some of the episodes are short there's things i cut initially that you know time wise we could squeeze in <laughs> <laughs> you can't you gotta stop somewhere dan right you gotta yeah. say okay you, you gotta stop right and that's it season two people you know when you, when you <laughs> upload this on amazon as as a, as a self-distributed thing which it is um you're only as an episodic thing you have to pick season one you can't just say limited series or 10 parts right it's season one right? You have to, you have to pick it. You have, it says season one and name your episodes. You, there's no choice. You can't call anybody at Amazon. It's completely robotic, right? So now, you know, dozens and dozens of people, I mean, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people have, have downloaded it and rented it or bought it and are watching it and it's spreading. So it's geometrically going. And I think a lot of people are going to end up watching it, but I'm now getting chronic emails, which is when's episode, when's season two coming out? <laughs> Where can we get season two? Uh, I don't see season two anywhere. When is season two? Is it a season two? <laughs> I'm thinking maybe if we should have just done five and season two should have been the second five, right? Anyway. Whenever I talk to documentarians, you know, there's always the, the issue or, or the challenge of voiceover narration, where, you know, whether to yeah. include it, whether not to include it, what does it, what does it, you know what does it do for for the overall story 
you know, should it be the director doing it? Should it be, you know, a, 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 just a, a, an actor doing it? What went into to that decision for you? Because you, you, you pop, your voice pops up every now and then. Um, that was, that was pretty easy. The, the, the question becomes how much of you is necessary and at what point do you become annoying? Um, and, and that, that's the tougher call. I knew I would be in it because I believe that the maker of, of what it is should present it. I, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, unless you have a very strong voice behind the camera invisibly like maybe Alex Gibney does or, or Barbara Koppel or certain, you know, really great filmmakers are able to do. I just got to know who this person is making. I, I can't trust it otherwise, especially journalistic things. You know, I, I, just, I just can't trust it. So when I made Stone Reader um, way back, uh, I, I shot it both ways. I shot it where I could, didn't have to be in it, and I shot it where I could be in scenes. In other words, you know, in an interview, you know, you, I could ha keep myself in, I could cut myself out if I had to. And... I found the only way I could tell that story was by being the protagonist in it and telling you why the story mattered to me. Otherwise, I thought it, it just didn't matter. Um, and uh, and then I filled in around with B-roll and other things and eventually, eventually built that narration out way more than I intended to do because every time you add a little bit of yourself, people want more. And... They want more to the point of excess. I mean, people in the end want you to spoon feed them everything. And so you've got to be careful and you've got to um, tell them enough to make the bridges and transitions if necessary, enough to let them know who you are so they can make a judgment. Oh, this guy knows his stuff. Oh, this guy's a nerd. Oh, this guy's like a kid in high school who uh, thought he was a know-it-all or you know, whatever they want to judge about you. you have to give them enough to see where you're coming from you have to give them enough to get through some of the transitions sometimes i do that in excess and um you know and and that's about what i try to do once you make it that way people then want more every time you do you essay out or create a, a stronger authorial voice people gravitate towards that voice. And it's the same in literature too. I mean, the old novels where people start, where the author introduces himself at some point, you don't want to see him go away. It's too intimate, okay? Um, to, once you break that wall. What I find interesting, you know, whenever you, I guess, make a documentary on whatever it is, a, a certain subjects, and I think country music fits into this, there people will, I think, if, if they're not a fan or if they're not, you know, sort of on, on the inside yeah. of that topic, they're always going to have misconceptions or, 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 or preconceived <laughs> notions about what that topic is going to be. And I think yes. country music is a lot like that. You know, for the most part, people think of country music as a very, you know, sort of white, heterogeneous, you know, uh, homogenous, you know, cowboy hat wearing sort of subculture and yet you know one of our biggest country stars Char was charlie pride right so when in the, in the course of, of making this were, were there any maybe misconceptions that that you had about country music or that you think the audience had that that maybe were dismantled in in a way in the course of this uh series well well 
half of mine were and half weren't. So the, so if, if you at the opening episode, the, the, the whole series begins with um, um, me retelling a, a moment where Colleen and I went to see Larry and Teresa on stage for 12 bucks at a small club for, you know, 75 people were there. We only went because I was going to visit my mother who lived nearby and it was something to do. And um, we were knocked out. I mean, she had tears in her eyes and I... Um, I was astonished at not just the musicianship and, and how great the concert was, but how much it took me back through a lot of the music I had grown up with that, that was brought forward now into the 21st century in kind of a new way. And, and the stories that, that Larry and Teresa told in and around that and their marriage and their own relationship in, in that. And, and I'd been watching Astaire and Rogers films for some reason. And I said, this, this is the same thing. This is, we could make a musical documentary, you know, around this, this couple and, and who they are and how they got here. So yes, at, for the first time, probably I heard, I don't know if it called country, but, but an amalgamation of, of, of blues and jazz. Larry plays a Duke Ellington song. He rearranged, uh, for guitar, um, caravan, um, country, certainly Appalachian music, gospel, um, in a swinging way, like not in a, not in like just the way that I used to be bored by that, a lot of that music, but in a way that was swinging musically and intricate. And that's credit to Larry and, and his incredible musicianship and the way he sort of moves and changes these songs around as well as his own writing that totally captured me. Now, did it make me feel any better about a lot of the other country music and Appalachian music and some of the country blues that I've liked here and there, but have never been a super fan of? No, but when they did it, I liked it. So there's a scene in that same episode in a record store where Larry and I are going through all the records that we, you know, grew up with and a couple other guys are there. You know, when, you know, as I was, uh, you know, I was 15 in 1969. Um, I started buying records in 67 heavily, you know, Cream and Hendrix and, you know, whatever. And then I, um, The Doors and, you know, I remember buying Live Dead and, you know, 10 years after. And, you know, by 72, I was buying jazz. I had stopped buying rock stuff. And Larry and I were going through the records. We all know the same records, Dan, from that time because it wasn't like a million things and downloads. There were, you know, a couple dozen record companies. They put out six or 10 records every couple months and you knew them all. It was finite, right? You knew every record. So um, we went through these records and then Larry went over to sort of the country bin after we talked about, you know, John Sebastian and, uh, you know, the band and uh, Moby Grape and Crosby, Stills and Nash and, you know, Rolling Stones, whatever. And he started pulling out these country records and he says, uh, he says, this is what I got into. And he pulls out a George Jones record. Okay. You know, I, I, I said, well, but how old were you? He says, I was, I was 15. He says, but I was totally into this guy. And I said, how could you be into that? You were 15. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't have been into that. I was listening to Santana, you know, he said, because of the, you know, because of the way this guy, the fiddle, the, this, that, and the sounds coming out of this guy's mouth. And then he says, and he was mocked for it. So he found that stuff early, early enough where he was still listening to all the you know, hard rock and, you know, all the other stuff. And he found this stuff early. And then he spent all these years sort of refashioning it into 
into this great stuff he does now. Um, not only him, but but a lot of guys like him do that. You know, Steve Earle, and you know, I mean, there's a you know, there's a whole mess of musicians Larry's age and around who went through the same process. Buddy Miller, who's in the film, and and that music is really really good and musical, and the inst and the playing on it is fantastic. So, yeah, that was I, I woke up a little bit to that. Yeah. Um, Another interesting aspect is you, you, you mentioned a few times that you, you actually gave Teresa a camera and let her film, you know, some yeah. stuff when, when, when her and Larry went on the road. Um, in, in, in terms of telling the story you wanted to craft, what was the, I guess, impetus behind letting the subject become the filmmaker? All right. Well, when you're out there doing this stuff, don't you sometimes want to see someone else's perspective on what it is you're doing or what they would go do? Um, I know for the years I, I crewed and worked with other directors, you know, I, I some of them I learned a lot from other ones. I wanted to just take the camera off the sticks and say, let me go shoot this. You got <laughs> let me just go. Let me go over. You're missing what this is really about. You guys think it's about this. Let me grab it because I was talking to them backstage or somewhere and there's a great shot. Let me just go get it. Um, I think Teresa had that feeling a little bit. Right. Um, Mark, I, kn I know you think you know what you're doing. I know you're a pro at this. And um, but you really need to do this and that. And her, both her and Larry's suggestions, I would listen to. They were good. You know, Teresa says, you know, we got to, I want to go to the cemetery. We should go to the cemetery. Why are we going to the cemetery? Well, because in the South, that's it. And we do that. It's meaning. We went to the cemetery. It was a great shot. It's a great part of the film. What she said there is instrumental to the message of it about music as a healer. She talks about when Larry's mother died. Um, it was it was a powerful scene. It's a powerful scene in the film. And um, I finally said, uh, you know, we can't be out there all the time. There's lots of great stuff you guys are doing. Um, I gave it to both of them. And uh, Teresa really took it up. And so you see, um, you see a lot of stuff I wouldn't have been there for. There's a scene where she shoots, where she and her mother go to, uh, uh, and her dad go to a little fair in her hometown. And she gets in a discussion with her mother about why her mother wouldn't let her sing Harper Valley PTA in, in junior <laughs> high school. Um, her mother who's, who's a revivalist and, and religious and, 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 it, and, and they, they hash it out. I mean, Teresa has been wanting to have this discussion with her. You can tell for decades and they hash it out right there on the little camera. <laughs> you hear Teresa's voice on the camera and the mother speaking as they're walking. So, I mean, there's some things in there that are priceless that she got and she got good at it as she, the more she did. And we would get this stuff, we would download it. I would go through 50 minutes and maybe there's a shot or two, you know, the next time there's 10 shots pretty soon there's whole scenes. I mean, Teresa, um, she and Larry are one of the reasons I love doing this. They're incredibly talented people, incredibly smart, super nice and down to earth feet on the ground. But they're not lacking for talent in multiple departments. Uh, Teresa has a master's in um, directing um, from a fine arts school, college in tech, uh, Tennessee. Um, she spent a lot of time, uh, you know, on both sides of the camera somewhat. And I think um, 
I think she brings a lot to it, a lot of the good stuff in there she did. So I was really, and, and she would always downplay, you know, Teresa would say, oh, there's nothing in there, you know, oh, I don't know if there's anything in this one, Mark, uh, there's a bunch of garbage, it might be something you like, and <laughs> we'd go through it, it'd be some great stuff, you know, is it, is it lit? No. Is the sound good? No. Is it great video? Like technically? No, because it's a cheap little camera. Could we save it in post? Yes. Is the content great? Yes. You know, so. What I find interesting is that in, in, in a way it strikes me that, you know, when, when you see uh, Larry and Teresa playing with, you know, people like Roseanne or, or, or Lucinda, the, the venues are very kind of small and, and, and much more intimate. Um, how do you think the the impact of this time we're living in is going to affect these smaller, much more personal venues? I mean, I mean COVID time? Yeah, or yeah. Digital twenty first century. <laughs> oh. Both, because they're. I think they're, okay. they're, yeah. they're 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 both affecting it in different ways. I I agree. Um, one of the reasons I went wanted to do this um, to take this the second part of that the, the digital twenty first century thing first is I had found and and I and I say it in the series, which is one of the reasons you know I, I it sort of leverages the series and and gives purpose to it is that live music had sort of brought me back to life from sort of a, a dead part of, um, you know, a dead few years um, a, a personal sort of, you know, just, you know, depression or, or just not, you know, not being full speed. And um, I started going to shows at first alone and I would go to live shows and the live shows were fantastic. All small venues, you know. I never, I didn't go to stadium things or Bruce Springsteen or whatever. I went to, you know, I went to see people, a hundred people, seventy-five people, two hundred people, you know. Um, and um, it was just great. I first I went alone, and and Colleen and I started going together once I met her, and we we shared a lot through that. So it was the music not only for Larry and Teresa, but for Colleen and me. And and I think um, Scott Sachs says in this um, that. Um, he, he says, you know, this, you have to, if you're out today, you got to be able to play live. You know, you're not going to make any money selling records or Spotify or, or whatever the hell, right? You, you got to have a good live show. It has to be great because you got people to come over and over again and it has to have variety. You can't just go out and play the 12 songs from your CD over and over. You know, you've got to really put something across that is entertainment like it used to be probably back in the Duke Ellington days or the Count Basie or, you know, you know, the Burns and Allen or Vaudeville or whatever. You have to really put it across and people do now. The shows are great. And I realized that and I wanted to get at that. And Larry and Teresa were the perfect combo because Teresa didn't care about recorded music at all. She didn't grow up with a million records or doing that. She was a live music person and that's her connection still. She wants to get up in front of people and sing and feels the connection. And she talks about that in, in this series. Larry's a producer as well as a, you know, songwriter and, and, and has been on a million records and heard a, a zillion live shows at the Fillmore over the years, but also, you know, records and, and recorded music. So he, he's more like me in that, in that sense. But, um, so I think that is a really, it's a really 
pre-COVID, right? We hit a really great time for music. And I think this could be like the last film for a long time that shows you, and maybe forever, of what this small venue experience was like for people. I, I think it was uh, Blind Boy Paxton who says, no, country music actually started in New York in the 1920s. Yeah, does, you know, yeah. m most people right. think of it as... Well, most that's... Yeah. And I know he's from LA and, you know, most people think of country music as a very sort of Southern centric yeah, yeah. genre. Right. I'm, right. I'm curious, what, what are the attitudes towards, uh, you know, country music in, in the bigger cities, which are, you know, probably a lot more amenable to, you know, maybe rock, maybe pop, uh, may, maybe punk. And especially in a city like New York, which isn't as religious as some of the places that country music comes from. Right. So um, that's something we, that gets talked about in here. Uh, Larry, you know, so Larry's from Manhattan, right? And and he was out with Jackson Brown as uh, he and Teresa played with Jackson Brown in 2015, just before I started shooting this. They came off the tour and decided they were going to do their own act. And I caught them right at the beginning of that. And so I wanted to talk to Jackson Brown, who's, who's in the series, and Jackson Brown, midway through, we were talking about Larry's songwriting, who he kept saying was Southern, and that's why Larry could do this, and what that's Appalachian, whatever. And I said, I said, Jackson, you know, he's from the east side of Manhattan. And Jackson spent, had spent like six months touring with him, right? He said, he is? <laughs> I said, yeah. I said, oh, wow. You know, it's like he was totally... Um, he's reprocessed everything there so so i don't think it's a i'm not sure it's a place thing um it's a you know it's a personality thing people there's plenty of there's always been country stations in philadelphia and we're you know where i'm from and new york and new york had that big thing going in the 80s where the city limits and uh, um you know the bottom line and they had all these country bands and stuff but it quickly developed it wasn't the saccharist country stuff that was the violins and produ overproduced trying to make a hit country song. It quickly became either people had to get very authentic with it and get down to like the stripped down version that is what Larry headed towards initially, or they jazzed it up and, and made it swing more which is also where he, a lot of what he's doing now. And, and, and I think um, like, the, like there's a scene, I don't know if it's episode nine, it's episode 10 um, um, time out for the blues uh, that Larry and Teresa do. And it swings and she's great in it and he's playing and it just goes. Okay. But if you hear the original of that, it is a slow languorous saccharine country song, but the way they do it with, coming from, you know, a more 60s, 70s contemporary back, uh, uh, you know, music of inventive time. It's just, it swings, you know, like, like what the Burrito Brothers did with stuff way back. Um, so it's, um, you know, I, 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 I think this, all the cities have the, uh, um, have it, but I think there's two schools. There's the, you know, there's the, uh, you know, the pop country artists you hear and, and are well known and, and, you know, stay within a very narrow group of like they have songwriters, they have publishers, they try to put these things across just like just like pop used to be in, in the 60s and 70s, just like the Brill Building, just like the people Carol King used to write for. Right. Uh, you know, um, and then there's the 
singer songwriter people, right? You know, more more the Buddy Miller types. You know, he's from New Jersey, but lives in Nashville, and you know, a lot of people think he's a country and hard country. There's a station on Sirius called Outlaw Country, and there's four or five stations of country stuff on Sirius. And when you go through them, they're very distinct. Just like when you go through the rock stuff now, you know, there's classic rewind. There's, uh, you know, what eighties, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's all these different, there's rap, you know, there's all these different sort of genres. Um, I don't know. The labels don't mean a lot to me, but, uh, um, but I don't think of Larry and Teresa as country when I saw them. I saw it as something like um, what I loved about the Burrito Brothers. It was like all kinds of stuff, you know? It was like a melting pot of, of stuff, a real melting pot. Um, yeah, and I had to go find out why. I had to finish that concert and had to figure out why did this hit me and why am I suddenly inspired to go find out what the music meant to me all these years what ultimately what do you want people who watch this movie whether they're country music fans or not fans of larry and Teresa, whoever is is there something that you that you would want an audience to take away from this series i I like that they take away something and I've, I've heard from people. And when you make, when you make these type of films, um, as opposed to when you make a film that is coming out of you and is sort of, um, let's call it homemade in some ways. I mean, it's not, it, it doesn't have a corporate entity behind it, whether it's a corporate sponsor or whether it's Netflix or HBO or Showtime, you know, when you make films that way, even if it's your idea and you're making your film, you have to make it how you agreed to make it for the people who are putting forth the money. Okay. You just can't go off and do, you know, Z when you promised him, you know, J K L M N O P. And so I was able to do that because we find this is self-financed and um, you know, we had people invest in it, but it's basically we could do what we wanted. So when you do that, you're headed off in a direction that you think um, appeals to you and you think you're following stuff and you're putting the pieces together. And then what you find out, and I've learned this before, so I, I know this is what has to be done. You have to put it aside. You just can't start cutting it right away. If you do, you'll shortchange the material. You look at it six months later when you're not so obsessed and in the middle of it all. And now this stuff talks to you and it tells you something that you did not see at first. And one of the things I saw began seeing was the relationship between Larry and Teresa. But not only that, the relationship between other couples in the film and what the music meant to them, even friendships like like Ewan uh, McCalkin and Jack Cassie, so not necessarily marriages or, or boyfriend-girlfriend stuff. And then, so I said, okay, I got something there. We'll call it, it was the music, I got a theme, I'll put this together, good. Now you've, you're still not there, that's like step two. 
it's done. And then you realize people see it and you realize, oh, there's something there I just didn't even see because I was too close to it. And that ends up being what the film's really about. And I've heard from a lot of people from this that they feel um, they're entertained, they say, as they have really strong emotions watching it. And the emotions come from watching Larry and Teresa and what they've done to keep the marriage on the rails for many years, both being strong, creative individuals, and suddenly they think about their own marriage. They think about their own parents or their parents' marriage. They think about deeper commitments they've made in their life or knowing people who have made those commitments. And I was sort of, I wouldn't say I was astonished to get some of those reactions that, I mean, I've had many people talk to me about it that don't mention the music at all. Nobody says country music. Nobody says, oh, I loved up on Cripple Creek. Oh, I love Buddy Miller doing that. Oh, it was so great to see Blind Boy play that, that blues thing. <laughs> I hear things about um, relationship commitments and um, loss and what we've lost and what some people are trying to hold on to and these bigger things. And that's really nice. I mean, people will bring, if you do something Right. And you stay to what you want to do. You may not see what you're doing, but people will bring their own associations and their own feelings and who they are to it. If you give them enough space, too many films are made. And especially when you got to be in 90 minutes and you got to just make it perfect um, without any space to them. There's no space for you to sort of be you or who you are. And I think one of the luxuries of doing these things for yourself and you know, um, not by yourself because we had a big crew and a lot of people invested in it, but, um, but not just, you know, not having to, you know, respond to any commercial, you know, instincts, uh, is that, um, you allow space for people. And I, I built that in here. You know, it's a space when we, when, when Larry finally confronts what Teresa's meant to him in his life and we got to give it space in the old days, I would have given that eight seconds. Okay. Let's see eight seconds, you know, react. In this one, I give it a minute, you know, um, um, and um, and I had a lot of help. You know, we had seven editors on the film, so you know, a lot of talent to to, to sort of whip me and make me have that space and say, "Yo, you got to do this." But um, you know, it wasn't all me. I had a lot of talent on the film, um, on the both shooting and cutting. Um, so, yeah. uh, this series is it was the music uh and where can people find it i, I know you mentioned uh was it amazon it's uh it's amazon um amazon direct just you know type it into amazon it'll come up um it's uh it's on it's on fans.live which is doing a week to they're doing something really interesting they're doing a week-to-week -week rollout of the series so you can watch like every sunday night you know let's just watch this that or you can get the whole thing at once um and there's a and that's a big uh, community and a big community of, of jam band people and all kinds of people who you know support this sort of music. And then it's on Vimeo, of course. Um, um, and uh, next year it'll be on. You know, we had to give certain like windows to things. And, and but next year it'll be on you know iTunes and Comcast on in demand and Fandango and all you know all these other places. You know, it'll, you just type it in. You'll see a whole bunch of places with competing prices. You know, just go get it at the lowest price. <laughs>
Well, I had a I had a chance to watch. Uh, I didn't get to the whole thing, but I saw the first three episodes of uh, good of, of the series. And yeah, no, it's it's you, it's gonna be it's gonna be a good little series. You're gonna keep watching. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got yeah, I have I, I have a few, couple more weeks off before uh, the film starts or the the shoot that I'm working on starts back up again. Um, so uh, well, I'm curious if you if you get if you get to the end. I mean, over time, and and I I think it works over time. You know, you don't have to jam it in. You know, um, um, over weeks or months. If you get to the end, let me know what you think. I, I'm curious to hear your takeaway. Um, okay, yeah, for sure, especially especially at your at, at your generation because that's another thing that surprised me about this I thought I was making this and okay people my age who I went to college with or listened to the music I did in the 60s or 70s or Larry and Teresa they're gonna get this okay and uh, okay that's the audience and sort of boomers and whatever right right and we found out that like half the people are not that at all there's like lots of people in their late 20s to mid 30s and and in that age group who have gotten it who are watching it who are passing it around and that floored me um and they don't even know a lot of the music but I, I, one woman said i i i corresponded i said did you know the people were she says yeah well, i sat there with my phone and i looked it up i now have like 60 records i'm gonna go listen to and, you know i made a whole list it's on spotify and blah, blah, you know <laughs> she's like really going and um but then i realized i i said um uh, I, I i said to her, how did you you know strike you she says i i completely know all this music i don't know it but i know it because my parents played it when i was growing up you know i mean they're this they're the children of right people my age right and so it's not far they've heard this what they've heard you know hot tuner you know, jefferson airplane or you know pot, canned heat or you know Roseanne. they've heard this stuff in and around the house um um and it's interesting because when i got into jazz i heard it around the house my dad played count basie and duke ellington and you know 40s jazz bands and charlie parker and that stuff and then i got into it and it wasn't like you know you hear the stuff it's much as you're growing up it becomes much more accessible as an adult you know i think yeah, no, for sure. Um, but whatever. Um, <laughs> good. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Thanks so much for this. This was uh, this was great. Thanks for having me on. It was fun. Fun talking to you. It's, <laughs> it's always good to blab on about you know something you've made. You know. Yeah. And that was my conversation with filmmaker Mark Moskovitz. His new series. It was the music is currently being released weekly on fans.live as well as Amazon. That does it for me today. As I mentioned, my guests on Friday will be the subjects of It Was The Music, Larry Campbell and Teresa Williams, and I'm super excited. Next week, I will have parkour star Silke Sofrank. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Please subscribe to Endeavors on Spotify, Google, Deezer, if you've been trying to find me on Apple, I apologize. Uh, there seemed to be an issue with uh, a URL and a verification, but it is all solved. So I am back on Apple Music. If you were looking for me there, you can find me now again on Apple. My social media is at Endeavors Radio, or the website is EndeavorsMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in. I will see you next time. Ciao. For now. I'm a real thing.
artists like to have a lot of sex.